Hello, I'm James McIntosh. I'm a toxicologist with Safe Food, and this is the Safe Food Food Safety Podcast series, where we look at different elements of the food chain on the island of Ireland. In today's podcast, we're going to focus on food intolerances, which are often eclipsed by concerns over food allergies, but which are probably far more common. And here to discuss food intolerances with me today is registered dietitian and nutritionist Sarah Kyo. For almost 20 years, Sarah has run Eat Well, a food and nutrition consultancy for the food industry and the public. Sarah, you're very welcome, and I hope I've done you justice with that introduction. Perhaps you can give us an idea of your background and the work that you do. Well, thanks for having me today. Um, as I just said, I'm a registered dietitian, so I am, I've been working now for, I suppose, getting on for 25 years in nutrition. So lots, it's a couple of different areas. So I've worked in some cancer nutrition, but also a lot in digestive health. And, you know, when we do talk about food intolerances, it's very, very often centered around kind of gut and digestion would be the major places. So um, I'm working there and I work with the Celiac Society as well um, over, over the last few years. Thanks, Sarah. And I suppose just to kick off, if you go online and you, you know, you put in a search term food intolerances, sometimes you get uh, a lot of conflicting information. A lot of people seem to be confused, particularly about the difference between food intolerances and food allergy. What's the essential difference between the two? I mean, there's a lot of confusion there and people do mix them up. So a food allergy is where your immune system is triggered by a food. And some people obviously will have food allergies, um, but it's very much, it's often a very quick reaction. So, you know, we often think about someone who might have, for example, a peanut allergy and, you know, within maybe minutes of eating peanuts, they are having this anaphylactic reaction, this huge immune reaction, and they might have difficulty breathing. Some allergies will result in, in very quickly getting a rash or things like that. But it's very much what's key there is that the immune system is very much involved. And even a tiny, tiny amount of the food will cause a reaction. With a food intolerance, the immune system really isn't involved um, and people can usually tolerate a small amount of the food. So, for example, if someone is, for example, lactose intolerant, they if they eat a lot of lactose, they're going to have a problem. But usually they can manage small amounts of lactose without having a reaction. So I suppose the big difference is with an allergy, the tiniest amount causes a big reaction. But with an intolerance, tiny amounts are usually OK. Yeah. And you said that, that with an allergy, the immune system is involved. Is, I, I take it the immune system isn't involved generally with a food intolerance. Would that be correct? Not really. No. I mean, there's, it's obviously an area still of a little bit more research. But the test that you would usually look at for food allergy is what we call an IgE test. But as we know at the moment, there really aren't tests as such for food intolerance. Where does celiac disease and, uh, you know, the non-celiac gluten sensitivities fit into this grand scheme of things? The celiac disease manages to be neither an allergy nor an intolerance. Um, celiac disease is it's in its own little corner. It's an autoimmune disease. So it's, it's a completely different mechanism. Um, so it is a genetic autoimmune disease, but it is triggered by gluten. So technically, we would treat it like an allergy in that even a very tiny um, piece of gluten will trigger the reaction in celiac disease. But it's not actually a, an IgE reaction. In terms of non-celiac gluten intolerance, that is still an area under a lot of research. Um, so that's where people are having a reaction to gluten, but celiac disease has been absolutely ruled out and wheat allergy has been absolutely ruled out. There's a little bit of debate whether um, non-celiac gluten intolerance might still be people sensitive to a thing in wheat called fructan. So it's a little bit of trying to pull that out. But in saying that, it does look like it's affecting quite a few people and an estimated at the moment, estimated about 400,000 people in Ireland. Um, may be affected by it. But as I said, I'd, I'd still be looking at research around that for sure. 
Yeah, that's a, that's a lot of people. I mean, how mm. does it compare? Is it, do you think it's more prevalent than celiac disease? Definitely. I mean, celiac disease is about one in a hundred. So we think probably about 50,000 people in Ireland are celiac, although most of them are undiagnosed. And um, we only have about 15,000 diagnosed celiacs in Ireland. So we're, we're missing a few, but yeah, it's still, it's a lot less than the celiac in, or the non-celiac gluten intolerance. And what about things like um, irritable bowel syndrome or Crohn's disease? Uh, how do they relate to food intolerances or is there any relationship there? Yes and no. I mean, with irritable bowel syndrome can be caused by lots and lots of different things. Um, what we do know is that around maybe 10 to 12% of people um, will have some form of irritable bowel. Some it'll be quite mild, others it'll be quite severe. And then, you know, I'd, I'd have patients who've had to give up work with it. Um, irritable bowel can be related to foods. Um, you've probably heard people talking about a thing called a low FODMAP diet, which looks at fermentable carbohydrates, which can be a big issue for lots of people with irritable bowel. Um, and so, but it, other things can be relevant there as well. Things like Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, um, food can certainly, particularly with Crohn's disease, can play a role there. And again, it's, it's difficult to sort of, filtering all the bits out. We do know, um, I was looking at a study in children recently, that if a child has a flare-up of Crohn's disease, if they actually come off all food and they're on kind of special drinks that are what we call low allergen foods, that it can actually be very good treatment. But long-term, it, you know, it's, it, you know, so it's just, it's an interesting one with that. But certainly irritable bowel, yes, we would look at food intolerance there for sure. So obviously this whole area is, is a, an area of very active research Huge. and, and yeah. very complicated as well by the sounds of things. It, it really is. Yes. I mean, and the more you look at it, the more complicated it gets, to be honest. But, you know, we, we should have some answers in the end. There seems to be an awful lot more awareness these days about, you know, food hypersensitivity in general, food allergies, food intolerances. Why is that, do you think? I mean, compared maybe to 20 years ago, you know? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, unfortunately, we know that the rates of food allergies are increasing. So it's something that we are hearing more and more about with it. Now, in saying that, they're still quite tiny in the numbers. But I think also people are recognising things. For example, we know that around 10% of people in Ireland are lactose intolerant. And I think, you know, 20, 30 years ago, unless you were very unwell with it, most people sort of just didn't drink milk and it was fine. Um, but now people are becoming more aware on it um, and maybe they haven't figured out the link with the milk. And so, you know, some of the investigations would look at with it. Um, you know, there's lots of speculation about are we just sort of recognizing it um, in the sense that maybe people just put up with it years ago, whereas yeah. now people are saying, well, look, I have enough to be dealing with and I don't need to be having all these bowel side effects while I'm at it. So, I mean, in the course of your own work, what kind of uh, food intolerances now specifically would you come across so with, with the celiac society, obviously it's it's gluten. Um, lactose intolerant would be the next most common one. So about 10% of Irish people or people living sort of North Europeans um, lack the enzyme to digest lactose. Now it's an interesting one because um, most people who are lactose intolerant can actually tolerate cheese and they can tolerate a little bit of yogurt, but milk is definitely out. So that's quite a common one. And that's, you know, a lot of bloating, um, you know, with kids, vast amounts of gas, um, you know, and maybe sometimes diarrhea, but not always. Um, is, it, is, it mostly, is it mostly kids? Well, it's a, no, no, it can definitely be adults as well, but you, you're more likely to pick it up in kids because it's, you know, parents are kind of going, that's not normal, you know, okay. um, and it's usually is the amount of gas. They're kind of going, I have one child and there's this much gas and then I have this other child and it's just phenomenal. Um, yeah, that's a benchmark. A, yeah, <laughs> this is it. <laughs> Um, in adults, you do still pick it up for sure, because um, quite a few people that I've worked with over the years who came into me with irritable bowel syndrome, um, the problem is that they're actually lactose intolerant, and that's what's been causing this irritable bowel, and obviously you take the lactose out, 
it works. It's just you've got to be really, really careful with that, that people don't end up dropping their calcium levels because, you know, the bowel can be nice and happy, but you don't want to give them osteoporosis later on. So it's, it's striking that balance is important. But luckily, we have lactose free milk available these days, which has just been amazing. It's just been a phenomenal pro, you know, um, product that has come on for us. Uh, isn't it fair to say that uh, lactose intolerance depends on where you are in the world? I mean, some parts of the world, are, it's very prevalent yes. in the adult population. Is that right? Compared, compared to, I think we're, we're generally lucky in this part of the world, aren't we? We, we are. are. I mean, and it's it's an interesting like we, we have a genetic adaptation in sort of northern Europeans to be able to tolerate lactose but you're right I mean if you look um like 90% of north Europeans can tolerate lactose by the time you get to Spain um only 65% of people can tolerate lactose and then it just sort of goes down but what you will see is lots of countries people will still have milk but they tend to ferment it so if you go to India for example it's very rare people will drink milk but they drink lassi which is a fermented milk drink and the fermentation has reduced the lactose so we do see lots of dairy still being consumed but it's really north europe where we'll actually drink milk um just directly yeah. do, do you ever come across any any strange food intolerances in the course of your work um i mean there's, there's some very odd ones um i always remember sometimes you know stress a little bit can be involved in some of them and i had a very interesting um, patient a long time ago who was allergic to or had a reaction and intolerance to oranges if she was eating them on a normal day but if she was very relaxed on holidays could eat oranges and they were fine and you do actually see now it's rare but you will see a stress factor sometimes in some food intolerances and allergies um but there's nothing really that you would see odd i mean the, the typical ones would be fructan in wheat um, you would be looking at thing called GOS um, in sort of beans and lentils for some people, you know, sorbitol for some people, which you'll find naturally in things like avocado, but also it's in, say, sugar-free chewing gums and things like that. So some people will react to those. Um, so there's, there's a lot of things. There's nothing very odd or weird. This, this stress reaction is an interesting one, though, sometimes in allergies and, and intolerances. So it's a stress-related citrus intolerance. That's yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And it, it took a little bit of figuring out. Um, I mean, we do see at the t at the moment as well, um, more people being diagnosed with um, an exercise-induced anaphylaxis, which is someone who can eat wheat when they're not exercising, but if they've gone out for a run and then they've eaten wheat within a couple of hours, then they actually have an anaphylactic reaction. And that takes a bit of really detailed history to try and find out what's going on. How can they eat, eat, eat wheat here, but actually when they've intensely exercised, they're reacting. So, you know, that's a, that's a recent one that we've just seen in the last few years really been picked up. That would be more the wheat allergy side of things, isn't that right? Very much an allergy than an intolerance, for sure. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And you, you mentioned already, just in, in passing there, FADMAPs. Yeah. Uh, we're hearing more and more about FADMAPs and FADMAP diets. And a friend of mine is actually on a FADMAP diet at the moment. What's, what, what's that all about? And how does it link in with uh, everything else? So what we have is we've all got these bacteria living in our gut. And we have these uh, components in food called fermentable carbohydrates. And if you can think of fermentation, if you've ever made beer. Um, so what happens is these fermentable carbohydrates get into the digestive system. They get they pass on through. They get into where the bacteria are. And in most of us, when the bacteria get their hands on them, they ferment them. But they make things that are very beneficial for us. Um, so they, these FODMAPs would actually be involved, we think, in helping to prevent things like bowel cancer. So they're actually very healthy. But in some people, the reaction with the gut bacteria is really over the top. And if the gut bacteria make huge amounts, for example, of hydrogen gas out of these FODMAPs, someone will get quite a lot of diarrhea. They might be end up going like 15 times a day. If they make a lot of methane, they can end up with really severe constipation, which is not fixed by high fiber diets or increasing fluid or all the usual things that should fixed constipation with that. So with the FODMAPs, these fermentable carbohydrates, there's a couple of different kinds. So lactose would be one of them. 
in someone who's lactose intolerant, but you know, we see some in, in other foods. So what we would look at if someone, for example, is diagnosed with irritable bowel, I mean, the first thing you're going to do is make really sure celiac disease has been ruled out because about 15% of people with irritable bowel will turn out to be celiac and it was missed. And the main reason it's missed is people often go off the gluten and then they have their celiac test. So you have to be eating gluten when you have your celiac test, otherwise it doesn't work. And it's a so, straightforward blood test as well. Uh, so it's a, it's a blood test followed by a biopsy for adults. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. But with irritable bowel, there's no blood test, unfortunately. So what we do is we put them on what we call a low FODMAP diet. So we take these fermentable carbohydrates out of the diet. And you might do that depending on, on the person between, you know, four weeks, even sometimes up to 12 weeks. Um, and then if they get better on that, then what you do is you bring back each FODMAP one by one. And you just do it gently and you see, well, what can they tolerate? So you'll start with a tiny amount on one day, a little bit more the next day, a really good amount the next day. And if everything is good, you go, okay, you're all right on that one. But if they react to it, then obviously we, we take that one out. So the reintroduction phase is incredibly important. Um, I've seen lots of people over the years and they've been on their low FODMAP diet for a year. And it's not good because as, as I said, the FODMAPs actually are important for gut health. So you really want to avoid the ones you have to and make sure you bring back in the ones that you can actually tolerate because it's very important to do that. And give us some examples of these FODMAP foods. What are we talking about here? Are we talking about standard vegetables and fruit? And different fruit ones. Like I mean, it depends. There's a couple of different ones. So you might look at, um, say, common things that would be out on this would be wheat is usually out because of the fructan that's in it. You might look at things like avocados because of maybe sorbitol, mushrooms because of mannitol would be another one. So cauliflower mushrooms, avocado, sweet potato, uh, butternut squash, they'd be things that you'd be taking out. So there's a list. Um, apples are actually a big trigger for lots of people. Um, which is an interesting one. And actually, one of the ways you might figure out if, if wheat is an issue for you in terms of FODMAPs is that you can tolerate brown bread, but you can't tolerate white bread because there's more fructan in the white bread than there is in the brown bread. Um, but that's, as I keep saying, make sure you've checked out for celiac first um, with it. So there's some of the foods and it can be quite restrictive. And that's why, you know, if someone is going to do this, it's really, really important that they sit down with a registered dietitian for it. And um, we've a lot of research on it now. And we know that people who sort of go it alone with um, the low FODMAP diet, about 20% of them will get better. But if they actually sit with a registered dietitian, about 80% of them will get better. Um, because it is, it is actually quite a fiddly diet to get right. But also, you know, if you're cutting out a lot of, you know, fruits, vegetables, dairy, all of that, your nutrition can be really impacted. So you really have to make sure, particularly if someone's vegetarian, it's really impacted with a low FODMAP diet. So you need to work with someone to make sure your nutrition is looked after as well while you're going through the elimination phase. I presume, Sarah, that as with FODMAPs, diagnosis of other food intolerances really hinges on eliminating the food from the diet and then following that up with a phase introduction. It, it really is. And, you know, there's, I wish someone would come up with a blood test that actually works for it, but we haven't got one at the moment, unfortunately. So it is the, the sort of slow and steady elimination diet with it. But it's what we'd always call the gold standard. And the thing is, even if, if there was a test, you'd still always do the challenge. And even with the FODMAP diet, it's actually useful after about a year to re-challenge again anyway, because sometimes the gut bacteria settle down or change. Now, sometimes people have such a disruption of gut bacteria that they might actually need to have uh, very specific antibiotics for it. So you might have heard people talk about a thing called SIBO, so small intestinal bacteria overgrowth, which is a little bit of a different thing. And sometimes that's a, a breath test by a very experienced um, expert in order to do that. Um, so sometimes you're looking at um, sort of more medical treatments for that. But the FODMAP diet does work there as well. And that brings us on to the, the area, I suppose, of, of testing. Um, how, how can a person tell the difference between, I suppose, 
a scientifically valid test for a food intolerance and 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 the the, the snake oil you know <laughs> solution. I suppose I mean it just 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 anecdotally, you see a lot of adverts for food intolerance testing in various locations. You know um, what what are they based on? Are they, are they valid? Will they give you will, will they give you an accurate result? Um, or you know, is it a case of buyer beware? It's really buyer beware. It's it's definitely an area, and I, I've spent a lot of my career having to break to people that the two or 300 euros they spent on these food intolerance tests was an absolute waste of money. Um, we see lots of testing, but you see things like hair testing and, and various others, and um, there's just no evidence to support them diagnosing food intolerance. The one that's been very popular was what we call IgG testing, where you people send a drop of blood, um, but the HPRA had a statement, I think probably 2018, um, really clearly calling out that these tests do not diagnose food intolerances. Um, what they actually tell you, which I think is interesting, is they tell you what you ate in the previous three weeks. So these lists, people get a list back and there's like the red list where you had a really high result and an amber list and then a green list. But the foods you've eaten in the last three weeks are going to have the highest reaction because you've eaten them in the last three weeks. So they get the red. And now these tests, they were around a long, long time. And I've had patients coming in with them for years. But what I, I had to laugh over the last few years, because 20 years ago when people came in, nobody had avocado sensitivity absolutely nobody and these days every other person comes in with an avocado sensitivity and the big difference is nobody was eating avocados in Ireland 20 years ago whereas now they are and that's what I'm trying to say to people it just tells you what you've eaten recently and if you just keep a really good food diary for three weeks you will get the same information at a fraction of the cost um, and the HPRA statement actually is really worth reading on that so it's frustrating to people because they are heavily marketed and I do see them you know lots of people saying oh we do food intolerance testing and as I said I wish there was as a dietitian if there was a blood test I could do rather than the elimination diet I would but sadly um no not at the moment is, is there any truth that in, uh, you mentioned the IgG test mm -hmm. that in actual fact IgG could be a marker of tolerance yes. as opposed to intolerance well, this is it. And particularly in studies on children with eczema, they've looked at this and with, with eczema, eczema often leads to food allergies um, in, in a lot of people. But what they're finding is that the children that have the highest IgG to a food actually are less likely to go on to develop an allergy compared to children with lower levels. So the general thinking is that an IG, high IgG reading, rather than saying you have a food intolerance, is actually saying you are actually tolerating this food very, very well. Um, so there's a lot of confusion, I think, for every, you know, for people trying to figure their, their way through these. So, so if somebody is worried that they may have a food intolerance, um, what's, the, what's the first step? What should they do? The first thing I would look at is, um, have you actually got any symptoms? Because when food intolerances were really at their peak a few years ago, I used to get people coming into my clinic and they'd come in and I'd say, okay, what are we here for? So I think I might have a food intolerance. And I'd say, okay, well, what are your symptoms? And they'd say, well, I don't have any. And then I'd say, well, go home then. Because if you haven't got any symptoms, you haven't got food intolerance. Like it, it really is that. So what you're looking at is what are your symptoms? So it, and very often food intolerance is really about digestion. And that's, I'd say pretty much 99% of the people I'd see it's digestion. So if your digestion is funny, the first thing you do is you go to your GP and you get your celiac test done, rule that out because it's, it's quite common in Ireland and it's missed a lot. So celiac test first, and then let your GP check out and see, well, you know, does your GP want to send you? Do, they, do you need to have an endoscopy? Do you need to have a colonoscopy? Let your GP, don't self-diagnose. And if the GP goes, look, we've ruled out everything. You don't have celiac disease. You don't have Crohn's disease. You don't have any of those things. You're having these symptoms. Your next step is a core registered dietitian. And your core registered dietitian is going to be able to look at your foods. And what you'll do is you take a very detailed history. 
And that's the thing. It's it, the skilled part of it is actually the conversation with the person and going, what symptoms, when, which foods, and just really going through it um, and having a look at that. And then from there, you might you might do the full FODMAP, but you might actually just do one or two because, you know, you might sort of look at them, but you know something, I actually just think it's Sorbitol with you and we'll try that. So rather than trying to do the whole thing, um, and it's just, I suppose it's like anything else, it's just getting the professional advice um, through it. So the elimination part, and then, as I said, the reintroduction to make sure because I see people and they've given up dairy for all kinds of reasons, you know, and, and, you know, maybe for sinus. And for some people, that's fair enough. But someone says to me, well, I'm off dairy for sinus. And you can hear their sinuses are still really bad. And I was going, well, did it get better when you cut out the dairy? And they're like, no. And I was like, well, you could probably put it back in again then. You know, if you cut something else and there's no improvement, then that wasn't the problem. But it's just... There's so much, I think, online and social media and everything's like, well, you should cut this out and you should cut that out. And, that, you know, I was talking to a friend this morning and she was like, well, maybe I shouldn't eat tomatoes because, you know, are they not bad for arthritis? And you're like, no. And they're saying, but they're acidic. And it's like, but your stomach produces liters of hydrochloric acid a day. You know, one tomato in the middle of all of that is going to make no difference. But there's just people are bombarded and it can be so hard to actually separate out sort of fact from fiction. And I suppose the current uh, celebrity culture doesn't exactly help. It, you know, it's a little bit there. Now, I have to say some celebrities are wonderful and we'll actually go, I haven't, I don't know anything about this and talk to experts. But, you know, if someone is on a special diet and, you know, I think with celebrities, people have trust, you know, they, they're a familiar face. They, they trust them. So I said, well, I'm doing this. And go, oh, well, that sounds interesting. Um, but it's a bit, you know, I, I would always say, would, would you trust them to do the electric replacement in your house? And they're like, no. I said, well, they have as much experience as an electrician, a lot of them, as they would have in terms of nutrition information. So, you know, it's it's hard. But I think sometimes people look at a celebrity who looks fabulous. You know, they're slim, their skin is great. They go, well, they must know what they're eating. And, you know, not saying that they don't. But we just need to be careful about, particularly when it comes to what we're cutting out of our diet, because I would have a really big concern about the amount of people cutting dairy foods out of their diet for no reason. Um, you know, now if someone is, you know, wants to go fully plant based or things like that, but I see people saying, oh, you know, it causes cancer, whereas we know the evidence shows that absolutely it doesn't. But I'm just seeing lots of people in their 30s and under and their calcium levels are so low. I'd be really concerned about their bone later on. And they're not replacing their calcium. They think that they had three spinach leaves in their sandwich for lunch and it's covering them and it's just not, you know. And, and I suppose the same for for, for, for gluten, a lot of the gluten-based foods, which would, correct me if I'm wrong, would be a, a good source of fibre, dietary fibre, isn't that right? Some would be, um, for sure. Some of the, so some of the gluten-free foods um, would be actually higher in fibre than the ordinary, some would be lower. So they're very varied. So I think if you're looking for that, it's, it's again, check labels with it. Uh, I mean, there was certainly sort of a big fad where everyone was going gluten-free, but, you know, we did find loads of celiacs in that because people are going, well, you know, I tried this gluten-free, actually, suddenly I was amazing and my iron levels came up and my hair stopped falling out. And we're like, okay, you're probably celiac. So we, you know, we check that. Um, but, you know, foods, there's trends with different foods and people like to do different things and play with diet, you know, but I said, I don't mind any of that as long as you're getting all of your nutrition with whatever pattern you're following in terms of food. There's no special recommendations, is there, with regards to uh, food intolerances? You know, for instance, in the same way, specifically with food allergies, no, um, you know, particularly in, in, in what are called susceptible families or atopic families, for instance, they'd be advised uh, to introduce things like peanuts from six months of age, you know, in order to stave off the potential for developing a peanut allergy. Is there, is there anything, is there any recommendations with regard to food, food intolerances? Not to the same extent. I mean, the allergy would be a little bit different, but with food intolerance, no. Now, what you will sometimes find, if there's a couple of people in a family who's lactose intolerant, you'll generally turn up one or two more who are as well. Um, but again, it's it's usually that genetically they're just not making um, the lactose. So that would be the only one that you might see a little more often. 
um, where people, I'm always deeply suspicious when I see, you know, if someone comes in and said, I've irritable bowel and my mother has it and my cousin has it, my sister has it, I'm kind of looking at you going, I'm going to check the whole lot of you for celiac disease because that's usually what's, and quite often, unfortunately, that is what it turns out to be. Um, so, I mean, as I said, celiac disease isn't a food intolerance, but we do know that it's, it's a good idea to kind of give in gluten um, from around six months anyway um, for kids with that. Yeah, and, and, and I think it's, it's important to, to stress, as you said earlier on, that not all celiacs are actually diagnosed, isn't that right? Yeah. Something like one in six or something, is it, or, or, or actually, might actually be diagnosed? Yeah, I mean, what we have, we've, we've estimated we should have about 50,000 diagnosed, and we have around 15,000, so we're missing about 35,000 celiacs. All right, which is a lot. It's a lot. So if you, if you have irritable bowel and you've never had a celiac test, make sure you pop in your gluten for six weeks and go and get tested. It's really important to do that. Yeah. And, and if you if you go for a routine blood test with your GP anyway, I mean, they, they can actually do the... the they the, can the, they can do it there. It's not usually a routine test. Yeah. Um, but the crucial thing is that you have to be eating gluten for six weeks beforehand. If you just go in and get it without the gluten, it will come back negative, even if you are celiac, which is very confusing. So I suppose the, the, the take-home message really for, for um, our listeners today, Sarah, would be if you think you have a food intolerance don't self-diagnose go to your gp they would probably refer you to a dietitian or nutritionist and because you certainly have to have a controlled approach to investigating what you think uh, it may be a food intolerance isn't that right and that's it and you know make sure it's a coru registered dietitian um you can check that any anyone like dietitian is a protected term so that's what you you look for with that because that makes sure that you have someone who really knows what they're doing um for this and, you know, you can get in touch with the INDI, um, www.indi.ie um, and SEDI.ie, S-E-D-I.ie, and they'd have a list of dietitians that you can contact as well. But you've the HSE dietitians that your GP can refer you to as well. Okay, well, we'll end there. Uh, thanks, Sarah, for that exploration of food intolerances, which affects so many people in the island of Ireland. And thanks to you too, our listeners, for tuning in. If you want to get in touch by email with us, uh, go to info at safefood.net. And if you want to hear more, search Safe Food Podcasts wherever you get your podcasts or join the conversation on Twitter at Safe Food Network and follow us on LinkedIn. Until the next time, goodbye.